You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on demand platform you can watch anywhere. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Here's what's coming up on this edition of My Life in Four Trades. The biggest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world is the Fed's manipulation of the mortgage and bond market. The Fed drove the value of mortgages to $15 trillion above their 50-year historical average rate. And unfortunately, we are all suffering from the fallout of that bubble. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Dan Moorhead, the founder and CEO of Pantera Capital, an investment firm that focuses exclusively on Bitcoin, digital currencies, and companies that use blockchain technology. Dan also has over 25 years of experience managing global macro funds. Thanks so much for joining me, Dan. Hey, thanks so much, Maggie. So good to have you here. So before we jump into your four trades, um, tell us a little bit about your background. You know, where are you from and what was the young Dan Moorhead like? Oh, I grew up in Sacramento, California, and um, I wanted to be a structural engineer to design bridges and buildings. Uh, My grandfather had designed the suspension part of the Bay Bridge, and I wanted to be just like him. So that's what I studied in college, but I needed to take some um, liberal arts to, you know, qualify for my degree. So I took eight econ classes as kind of my, you know, hobby. And um, when I got out of college, I was still planning to go to grad school in structural engineering, but deferred that for a year or two so I could go uh, work on Wall Street and start out as a uh, mortgage bond trader at Goldman. First of all, amazing that your grandfather worked on that project. Before you took those econ classes, were you interested in finance and trading and investing? Is that something ca- that came up like in discussions around the dinner table? Or was this brand new to you when you started taking the, these courses at Princeton? Oh, it was totally brand new. My parents said I could be any kind of engineer I wanted to be. And so um, my older brother you know, majored in electrical engineering, but actually got another degree in physics. And he's a physicist. And I got a degree in structural engineering. And I'm an economist, basically. So um, it was 1987. Everyone was piling into Wall Street. And it was uh, kind of the easy thing to do is just apply for jobs on Wall Street. Um, I remember I, I had an interview with a commercial bank. And they said, hey, it says on your, your uh, resume you want to be an investment banking analyst. I'm like, yep, that's what I want to be. And they're like, what's an investment bank? I'm like, oh, crap, I know this. And I was like, it underwrites debt and secu- uh, equity <laughs> instruments. And he's like, okay, we're a commercial bank. We can't do that. Why are we talking? I was like, oh, crap, is the, inter- is the interview <laughs> over? And it was over. So um, <laughs> I just kind of wanted to do it because that was the you know kind of the thing to do in the 80s. And um, 
And then once I started doing it, it was so much more fun. So this was before the crash. Yeah, it was actually a few months before the crash. Uh, and it was so fun because, you know, uh, you got your results instantaneously and there was just so much dynamism, which is, you know, kind of the opposite of engineering where, you know, you have to be very safe and everything, you know, takes a really long time. So when you, am I correct in understanding that you joined as their first asset backed securities trader? So that's the part of the market that you went into. Yeah. So I started out as a Goldman's first asset backed securities trader. And I was trading, you know, credit card loans and auto loans, which at the time seemed super sketchy, kind of like Bitcoin does today. Uh, and people thought that was really weird. You're buying people's credit card debt and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a tiny little book. And, you know, I was running it. I thought it was, that was really cool. And it was really fun. Uh, I was on the CMO desk, collateralized mortgage obligation desk. And I remember my boss, really sweet guy, Alex Tedeschi, he would sit there on Friday afternoons and mark the book. We would mark to market only once a week, you know, and like now everybody has like instantaneous uh, P&L. And he would sit there and he'd get a yellow pad of paper out and a number two pencil and write down the name of the bond, the quantity of the bond, the price of the bond. He'd get his little HP12C out and get the value. And then he'd write the next one down. And I was like, dudes, there's this thing called a spreadsheet and it can do this for you <laughs> without having to retype everything. And they thought like I was an Aztec god because I could operate Lotus one, two, three. <laughs> Unbelievable how primitive Wall Street was. And this is 1987, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was very, very, very primitive days, but fun, uh, you know, trading, you know, new markets that nobody had done before. Well, that's so interesting because it, it was a frontier market. I mean, we all learned a lot about all of this stuff in 2007, 2008, but when when it obviously matured and gotten even more complex, but it really was frontier, which is, it's so interesting to know that's where you jumped into. Um, what, just curious before we get into your trades though, and it also strikes me that as you're writing in that book, you kind of knew what you were doing, you know, you knew what those, what were in those funds if you had to write them on a yellow pad, I suppose, but this is all happening and it's all go, go great. But there is the stock market crash. Did that impact the kind of environment? Did you, even though you weren't trading stocks, did you feel that through Goldman? What, what was that like? Oh, yeah. And it was a huge event, right? Because um, market went down 25% one day or whatever it was. And, uh, yeah. you know, we were in the training class at the time. And, you know, some senior uh, executives, traders were supposed to come speak on different topics all, all throughout that day. <laughs> And they, each one was getting yanked out in the middle of the day and we could all feel something really grim was happening. Uh, and, you know, by like halfway through the day or something, they're like, you know, class is dismissed. You know, just, you know, go do something else. Uh, and then very quickly, um, some big things happened. I think it was Solomon Brothers that like fired their entire municipal bond department and, you know, just an amazing, um, amount of carnage, you know, and uncertainty, uh, in the markets. And that was back when, um, you know, most of these Wall Street firms were private partnerships. And when underwriting really meant they underwrote the thing. And so, um, you know, in Goldman's case, they bought British Petroleum and they owned it, you know, through the crisis. And, you know, it's just a really, really different environment than now. And the one funny story I had from my training class days is one of my bosses, he caught, he said, Hey, the only thing you need to know on Wall Street is you always have to have in your drawer at your desk a fresh shirt underwear and socks. I'm like, why? He's like, in case you need to go on a business trip, like really quickly. And so one day he called me out of the training class and he said, I got some super important project. And he said, Hey, we got to go see a savings loan. 
out in the middle of the country and you got to go with me right now. And so grab your briefcase since I have my nice leather briefcase, like the eighties. And he said, you put your change of clothes in there and we're going. And so that, that's all I had in my briefcase. And I was there to just sit in the meeting and act like, you know, I was there to do something. And all I had in it was my dirty clothes from the yesterday's flight out. And I just sat there for two hours and then we flew back. And I was like, Wall Street's awesome. <laughs> you just go sit in meetings with like your dirty underwear in your uh, briefcase. This is great. Let's dive into your first trade. It sounds like if you joined in about 87, you have been working for a little bit because your first trade is also one of your worst trades, and that is Japanese JGB super longs. That's Japanese government bonds in 1994. So sort of set the scene for us. Like, What are you doing in your life and your career at the time of this trade? Yeah, so I went to, I think it was 1992, um, uh, they asked if I want to go move to Japan and manage interest rate risk and equity derivatives in Tokyo. And I'd never even thought about Japan in my life, but, um, I was newly married, no kids. So I'm like, Hey, this could be fun. And so I moved to Japan, I guess, uh, late 1991. And they had just come through their huge, uh, bust of the Nikkei. The Nikkei dropped like 80%. And at the time, Japan was kind of like what China is now, like the super dynamic crushing everything, growing super strong all the time type of uh, an economy. And there was actually some kind of insecurity in the West about, oh, man, maybe, you know, Japan's going to take over the world. And, you know, how are we ever going to compete with Japan? Because they always had growth of 6 or 8%. And so Japan actually had overnight rates at 6%, which to anybody that started the markets in the last 20 years can't even imagine because they, they invented ZERP, zero interest rate policy, and they've had zero rates since then. Um, but they had rates at 6%, and the uh, economy really looked like it was going into a recession. They just had the Nikkei fall like 80% or something like that because they had priced everything to such ludicrous levels. There's a, a story at the time, which I think was actually true, is the amount of land of the Imperial Palace in Tokyo would be worth all of the state of California. You know, like everything had gotten to such crazy valuations that, um, you know, there was going to be just a huge impact from the uh, market uh, imploding. And so I got there and it took a little while, but I kind of looked at it and I was like, hey, looks like you guys don't have, oh, and so they, they said they were going to have a Japanese recession, which meant sub 3% growth positive, but sub three. And I'm like, I don't know, man, it looks like you're going to have a Western recession. <laughs> like this thing looks pretty grim <laughs> and overnight rates were six percent. I was like, this has got to be one of the best trades of all time, right? You get rates have to start um, coming down. And so, uh, did a bunch of trades in Japanese rates for a while, but then about, you know, a year or two later, 1994, I think it was, found these uh, things called super longs. Um, the normal JGB is a 10-year bond, and everyone was totally used to JGBs means a 10-year bond. But somehow over the years, they'd issued some 20-year bonds that just kind of got literally got forgotten. I, I, it was so weird. And so uh, my partners and I started buying them up because they were like ludicrously cheap to these 10-year bonds. And then uh, they were maybe four or five years old. So within four or five years, they would become 10 years and then, you know, would kind of reset to this new, much lower uh, rate regime. And like all good trades, you know, we did a bit, then we did some more, and then we, you know, really convinced ourselves how smart we were. And we, we piled in and ultimately ended up, you know, owning probably <laughs> too big a fraction of all of those. Did it seem risky to you or you're like, this is so obvious. Like this is a this is a layup. Yeah. So I think this the 
kind of the, the moral of the story is it, it didn't seem risky because I didn't really have a full picture of what was going on and, um, probably didn't think through all the ways, you know, things could have changed over time. Uh, I had strong conviction that, that I would be right. And, you know, we were in a secular bull market, which is a really important point kind of for the markets as a whole. There is no working age person who's traded in a rising rate environment because rates were rallying six years into the rally. When I got to Wall Street, they've been rallying for 42 years. And honestly, I think that's the thing everyone's trying to get their head around right now that nobody is used to, including the chair of the Federal Reserve, Mm -hmm. rising rates and really can get a sense of where we're going. But so the super long thing is kind of a very small version of that. We got long a ton of them. But the, the fun bit about what happens, we put on a bunch of this trade and, you know, I was really convicted on it. I thought it was great. And then I went on vacation. And another example of how much the world's changed. Uh, my wife, Dev, and I went to Spain to Extremadura and, you know, did some paradoras and stuff like that. You could literally go off the grid. Like we just went on vacation. Like <laughs> yeah. there were no yeah. cell phones. There's no internet. No. Like we just say, Hey man, I'll see you in two weeks. And I, I went on vacation. You know, I was going to pop back through the London office when it was over. <laughs> and <laughs> I had a great time. Great. I highly recommend Spain's fantastic. But when I got to the London office, like somebody was like, Hey man, your boss really needs to see you. And I'm like, Oh, cool. So I sit and there's this really wonderful guy, Achilles Mackers. And he goes, Hey, do you see what happened in the super longs? I'm like, I've been in Spain for two weeks. I have no idea what happened. He's like, oh, they got crushed. They're down like, you know, six standard deviations or whatever. I'm like, oh man, that, that sounds super bad. And um, let me think about what I can do about that. And then I kind of went out of the office. And oh, and the part of the story is like, I thought we had like the only kind of remit in the firm to trade, you know, long-term Japanese interest rates. So the position that my two partners and I had on that was, you know, kind of on the border of stupid too big, Mm. seemed possible. But then somebody else came and said, hey, man, what are we going to do about these super long? I'm like, what part of we are we talking about here? Like, I didn't know you were part of we. <laughs> and I found and then like all day people kept coming up to me talking about it. I'm like, what? And I found out 57 people in the firm were like limit long super longs. And so we had like so much of it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So how did that happen? How did, did it, was it group think or did they see you smart guys doing it and think I'm going to get in on that too and look good? Well, yeah, I think that's the way it works. It's like, you know, anybody sees a parade, they want to get in front of it, right? Like, so if something's working and it's going great, you know, they all want to kind of copy what's happening. And um, I think that's part of kind of the lesson is that we had no clue that, you know, so many people were, you know, copying the trade and that, you know, that the, as a firm, we were just like way crazy uh, too, too long, this stuff. So do you keep your job through this? Uh, no, this one was at Bankers Trust. Okay. And um, the the fun bit about it uh, in, in is that in thinking of life lessons is that when I heard this, I was in London and I was like, Oh man, this is super serious. I gotta, I gotta really address this. And, um, you know, JGBs and this is back in the day when things had certain trading times, which was awesome. They only traded from 10 to four or whatever. And so I'm like, I gotta get back, you know, to New York into my real office, you know, before the Japanese open. And so 
I got to go faster than time. I have to take the Concorde and get there before I took <laughs> off, right? Because in the old days, you could hop on a Concorde at like 4 p.m. and get there at 2 p.m. I'm like, man, this is so serious. I got to get on the Concorde. So I like race out the airport, got on the Concorde, and I made it. I was sitting there at my desk in New York, like totally ready, right, you know, before the market opened. And what I do, I just stared at it for like six more months and got completely destroyed. So you you recognize this is wrong, you are failing. You recognize there are all these instant, there's all these other things going on, like the overexposure of the firm, other people in the trade you didn't know about. What made you not try to limit your loss at that point? Like, why stay in it? Because this comes up all the time. Why stay in a losing trade? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, part of it's the logical fallacy that it's already moved like six standard deviations. Like, what are the odds it goes any further? It could happen. And, you know, it often does. Um, and then, you know, one of the life lessons, and you have to learn this <laughs> the very slow and hard way, uh, is, you know, sometimes you have to live to fight another day, you know, and instead of just saying, hey, I'm just going to stick with this, you know, until ultimately maybe you get fired or your investors fire you or whatever. You know, sometimes it is better just cut some losses. Uh, and the, the punchline is probably, you know, you know, cut them sooner and, uh, you know, make sure you're you're there when you want to, you know, come back and, and keep fighting. So your second trade is the S&P dividend swaps in 2009. So you've got a decade more of experience, but this is not long after the great financial crisis. So what's the environment like now? Yeah, so this is a trade I did uh, in Pantera. So I, I founded Pantera in 2003. Uh, and uh, it's always been this opportunistic thing, you know, looking for different and interesting trades. And I, you know, I guess actually when I dated this for the, the prep material, I should have said it's like 2007 to 2009. Which got us okay. into the financial crisis. But uh, in like 2007 or 2008, I came to the conclusion that the dividend part of the S&P 500 would uh, perform very well. And um, it, there were a lot of reasons I thought that. But the you know, main ones were they were changing taxes to exempt dividends, I think, from capital gains. So that would make mm -hmm. companies want to uh, pay more dividends. You know, companies had incredible amounts of cash balances, you know, and I uh, generally thought dividends would outperform. And so originally I did a trade where I was long uh, the dividends on some out year, like 2017 dividends from 2010, so 10 years out. And then short the S&P 500 index itself, you know, because I wanted to be, you know, trying to be risk mitigating. And then ultimately in the trade as the S&P, uh, you know, came down and down, I decided, you know, that, oh, maybe the S&P has already come down too much into that global financial crisis. And then I, I went for the Texas hedge. I went just long <laughs> instead of having the a, a, a swap on there. And um the lesson from those trades is kind of like the, the super long, uh, the, the punchline of the super long, obviously that ultimately those worked. And, you know, if I had been able to hold that trade for the next, you know, couple of years or whatever it was, uh, would have made a ton of money. Same thing with the dividend swaps. This was a great example of when you have an idea, you really just have to balance all the other issues like liquidity, your ability to hold the position for a long time. And so 
we're running just a normal global macro hedge fund. And this is one of the trades in there, but you know, you're doing a 10 year over the counter swap with a bunch of Wall Street counterparties. You know, you kind of get stuck in a roach motel, like when everything goes bad. And instead of trading the S&P 500, which has, you know, infinite liquidity and almost no frictional costs, you get into a trade where, you know, you only have one or two people that can trade it. Mm-hmm. You know, in normal times, they make pretty wide bid offer spreads. In the global financial crisis, they make insanely wide bid offer spreads. And then so, again, you kind of have that risk management choice. It's like, gosh, you know, should I cut my losses at, you know, this incredible level uh, and pay all these huge frictional costs? Or, you know, should I try and mitigate the damage and live to fight another day? And, you know, so just you got to make those trade-offs. And the quicker you make them, the better. It's so hard. And the other the other thing, and this is a great, I think it's a great time period to talk about because you, so you put the trades on based on fundamentals that were happening before the great financial crisis. And so we're talking about the before the failure of Lehman, before Bear. And for those who were around, I was covering it at the time. In fact, I had just had my uh, my first day back from maternity leave for my second, an 18-month-old and a second child. And ch- my first day back that night is when Bear Stearns was sold for, what, $2, too. And I just, like, couldn't believe so My phone was blowing up. And that next day, that first day back, I was on a trading floor trying to report this stuff. But it had never happened. It was the impossible, right? That was yeah. It was unthinkable that Lehman could go, that Bear could go, that everybody was at risk of teetering. Yeah, it's true. We can all give ourselves grace to like, you know, not blame ourselves for bad trades like the one I did. But in reality, it was, it was dumb to have enough of the fund in something, you know, that if the world did go crazy, which at the time, remember, U.S. home prices had never printed a negative, mm-hmm. you know, so like nobody thought like that could ever happen. And so all the kind of subprime stuff that now in hindsight, oh, of course the big short was going to work. Like nobody believed that at the time. Mm-hmm. But the, you know, the lesson for the viewers today is, you know, definitely think about like liquidity, funding risks, things like that, that, you know, 10 years on an OTC swap is a long time and a lot of weird things can happen and it could get really expensive, you know, to get out of. And that's, I think that's so important because both of these, both of your worst trades were actually right on the story, but there were other factors involved, including sizing your risk and and the time horizon. Counterparty risk is something that we really understood in a different way during the financial crisis. People were getting blindsided by, you know, when those big firms went under, people had exposure or the counterparty risk exposure that people didn't even know what they were exposed to or who they were. That was just massive. That took so long to unwind, if I remember correctly. Yeah, no, it's true. And and that changed kind of the economics of things. Um, you know, firms would require you to post what could be thought of as extortionate margin or force you out at their own prices, right? And so that's essentially what happened is like, they were like, hey, you could either, you know, it, basically you get you know, choice of which way you want to die. <laughs> uh, and so, um, you know, really, really tough, you know, battling something that illiquid. Oh, and one, one of the, fi- the previous thoughts on the, the Japanese thing is I wrote in our investor letter recently about um, why I love trading, you know, cryptocurrencies is, you know, they're actually changing the world. They're actually moving. And uh, for 35 years, I traded dollar yen. 
And um, at the time, dollar yen was uh, 128.39, which was exactly the price it was the day I walked onto Wall Street. And it had spent 80% of those 35 years between um, one, uh, 20 points either side of 120. Like, I mean, what, <laughs> what, what, what? It's so ridiculous that I'm sitting there for 35 years trying to see where dollar yen is going to go when it actually didn't go anywhere. And that's why I think yeah. blockchain is more fun because, you know, it is actually uh, changing the world. Yeah. So how do you keep motivated? So obviously, the, there are big years and gaps of years in between this, and you're clearly having success in between the blowups. But how do you how do you kind of process when you know you're right, but you get killed or puked out for these other reasons? How do you process that? Like, how do you keep going? How do you kind of take that on board? Oh, it is tough. You know, um, trading's not as easy as it sounds, right? Like, it's super hard. And so there's a lot of disappointment, a lot of um, pain. And I was thinking there's a, a great line by the Greek poet Aeschylus that wisdom comes alone through suffering. And kind of one of the only ways you can learn is the hard way, unfortunately. And and some of these morals that I'm trying to share with your viewers today, I'm still kind of learning, right? Like they're not, they're not totally learned. But unfortunately, trading has a lot of uh, ups and downs. And mm. Um, the only th- the advice I would have is trying to be intellectually honest with yourself, you know, that to try and figure out a why things worked. And sometimes it's luck, right? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. you thought something was going to happen, something totally different happened and you still made money. And so really investigate your profits and your losses and try and try and really f- learn something from each, uh, each thing that, you know, either goes right or, or goes wrong. Well, we're going to talk next about a trade that did work. That's one of your best. This is trade three, and it's Tesla in 2013. So we we know everybody's in Tesla now. Everyone's talking about Tesla now, but this is 2013. So, you know, set the scene for us around this trade. What piqued your interest in Tesla? How did this get on your radar? Oh, I had a dinner with a guy named Mark Tarpening, who's one of the founders of Tesla, uh, he's a lovely guy, and he spent, you know, part of the dinner telling me how he's building an electric car and battery company. I'm like, so sweet. I'm so glad you're trying to do that, but I'm like, that'll never work. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and um, the funny thing is, um, I was rocking a Gen 2 Prius as my daily driver for like seven years then. And when he said he was going to build an electric car, I still was, I was like, hey, I, you know, hope that happens for the world. But like, I really didn't think it would happen. And a cool stat, which my uh, partner Ron Glantz had told me at the time, uh, who was a, then a, a Tiger partner of mine and an II All-American uh, auto analyst, it was that no car company had gone public since Ford Motor Company. I mean, that's pretty brutal, right? There's mm-hmm. all these super cool ideas like John DeLorean's car and mm-hmm. uh, the Di Tommaso Pantera. Um, all these super cool cars. Yeah, they all went broke. Everyone. Yeah, a graveyard. It was a graveyard. Yeah, of- every single one. We saw during the financial crisis, too, because as you alluded to, the government had to step in and backstop the car companies because everybody, because of their financing arm and their, you know, their counterparty risk to Wall Street, I mean, the whole system was cratering. And we all learned how hard it is to be run a profitable car company. Oh, yeah. It's it so brutal. Yeah, tough it's so business. Brutal, especially a new one. And even... When DeLorean was trying it and when Di Tommaso was trying it with the Pantera and stuff like that, there were almost no rules back then. And now uh, I was trying to import a Land Rover from England after I came back from uh, the UK. Oh, my God, the rules are extortionate. Like, 
you literally can't operate a car in America that doesn't say objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Mm. Like, and you have to have crash testing, bumper airbags. You know, it's like, it's almost impossible to build a car. It, and, and so everybody, you know, was telling me why that was a totally stupid idea that Tesla would work. And were they trying to get you to f- uh, to fundraise with you? Were they trying to get you to invest? Yeah, so they had just gone public, uh, and I think they were trading at a billion market cap, which these days is ironic. Like everybody wants to stay private till they're, you know, hundred billion or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they were a public company, and I uh, had kind of kept in touch with Mark and was excited about his project, but again, wasn't really thinking about it. And then they did announce the look of the Model S and some of the specs. And I was like, oh my God, that's gorgeous. And the specs are off the chart, like, you know, how, how it performs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ordered one of the first ones and I'm not even sure if I bought the stock until after I got the car, but as soon as I got the car, I was like, this thing is just going to totally destroy everybody. And then uh, the funny bit about the early part of the revolution is it was hard operating an electric vehicle in 2012, right? Like there was, there were no places to charge it. None of that. No charging. That was the other thing that even for people who said that there were all these, remember they, they got like the best performance in car and driver, motor trends or something like unheard of, gave it like the bit highest rating they've ever gained anything. But even after that, people were like, okay, looks great, performs well, but how are you going to run it? There are no charging stations. That was the other barrier. No, it's really, really hard, right? And um, so, you, you know, you'd have to kind of get a spreadsheet out to plan a road trip, right? You'd have to think, oh, you know, wh- where can I charge and how can I get there? And, how- and um, you'd, ha- you'd ha- I'd <laughs> calculated what speed I'd have to travel to not run out of battery, you know, and to get to where I was going. And my wife's pretty indulgent of these kind of passionate, crazy experiments. And so as soon as we got, I was like, oh, we got to go on the, we were going to go to LA for something. I was like, we got to take the Tesla. And she's like, I don't know. I'm like, no, no, there's a supercharger halfway to LA in this place on I-5 called Harris Ranch. And so I'm like, we got it dialed, right? So we're, we're driving down there. It's all great. The car's almost completely dead, but I'm like, it's no problem. We got this supercharger, right? And so we drive up to this and it's a huge, uh, you know, kind of restaurant hotel complex and a tiny little gas station there. And I'm driving around. And I don't, I don't see anything. And, um, finally I go in and ask the gas station guy. I'm like, Hey, where's the, the charger? And he's like, Oh yeah, it's that little cord there. And there's this one cord that was the one supercharger and it was plugged into somebody's road Tesla Roadster. And I'm like, oh, man, I didn't think of that. <laughs> the one supercharger had somebody using it, and the guy was gone. And so I was like, oh, man, this is terrible. So I got a business card and wrote on the back of him, like, hey, <laughs> you know, could you mind giving me a call when you're done with the supercharger? And Dan, you know, and put it on his windshield wiper. And like 45 minutes later, some nice guy um, named Tom or something calls. And he said, hey, I'm about done. You know, come on over. So I'm like, oh man, that's, that's, that's great. And so I get there and I charge up and we barely make it to LA and it's a great road trip. And then, so we're on the way back <laughs> and I pull into the same spot and the same dude was there. Yeah, you guys are on this. <laughs> I was like, this revolution is not going to work, right? If the two of us are sharing one supercharger the rest of our lives. And <laughs> so the early days was really hard. And, um, I was like, I, you know, I'm not sure if this is going to work, but the, you know, the punchline obviously is it's, you know, so revolutionary. And I've driven it for 10 years. I've had 100,000 miles and I've bought windshield wipers and, and tires. And so I, I think the thing could go another like 20 years or whatever, like nothing, it's just electric motors, right? Like, so it's, it's, I think it's, frankly, I think it's still superior to almost every car 
that's out there right now. So when did you buy the stock? Did you buy the stock or did you, how are, how are you playing Tesla? Yeah. So um, when it was at about 1 billion market cap, I think in late 2012 or early 2013, um, I decided to start working on it as an investment. And so, uh, as I mentioned, my partner, Ron Glantz, used to be at Tiger Management, where he's the auto analyst. And so I'm like, this is a great coincidence that, you know, our head economist at Pantera is also an expert in autos. And he wrote me like a 20 page paper on why it's the dumbest idea ever. He was like, it's just you fanboys that love Tesla stock, you know, and he's the one that told me that every car company's gone bankrupt and just a hundred reasons on why it was a dumb idea. But I'm like, dude, it's just a great car and, you know, it performs better and, you know, all this stuff. Um, and so we argued about it for a long time and almost everything I've ever done, I've done, you know, kind of in, you know, concert with him, right? Like, I, but I finally just said, I just, this thing is awesome. I got to do it. And so I started piling into it and, um, at what, like $6 or something, right? It was around trading yeah, in the sandal. You know, they've handle. done so many splits. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing, the price was in the 40s, but they've done, you know, so, so many splits all these times. Counting for that, but, right? Yeah. So then, so, uh, you know, really, you know, piled in and, you know, put a large position on because I, I thought I was going to change the world. And, you know, I still think they really have a ways to go. I mean, honestly, it's still so disruptive and it's so powerful. Um, so, I still think we're at the beginning. People, everyone used to think it was a car company. It's a power company, right? Um, yeah. And they have semi trucks to do and, you know, all these other things that can get disrupted with, you know, it's just a superior solution. So a couple of questions. Are, are you still in the trade and as committed as you were when you put it on? Or have you sort of lightened up and taken profits along the way? So um, I'm out of it. And I have this really weird thing about, I like to think kind of serially, like I can't, do things in parallel. And so what I ultimately did is I literally every dime I got out of Tesla, I put into Bitcoin. And so, <laughs> and then the fun coincidence is at the time during the middle part of 2013, uh, they literally traded the same dollar price. There were times when both were trading at $40 a share or both were $90 a share or whatever. And so as my conviction on Bitcoin increased in the second half of 2013, I sold uh, 100% of all of my Tesla shares and put it into Bitcoin. So you get out of that trade, you go into Bitcoin, which is your fourth trade, also in 2013. First of all, what is happening in 2013 that you have two of what you consider your best trades? Yeah, some, you know, sometimes things come at the same time. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just a quanky dink. But the, the one last little Tesla Bitcoin thing I want to share is we put a graph in our investor letter a couple of months ago of the market cap ratio between these two incredible disruptors. Obviously, you know, cryptocurrency and cars aren't anything directly the same, but they really do have some commonalities. And it's cool that the ratio of their two market caps has stayed pretty consistent. Uh, since 2017, you know, so for five years. And that's, you know, a fun way to just kind of view how each of these two disruptors is going. But in 2013, uh, got introduced, well, actually I got introduced to Bitcoin in 2011 by my brother. Um, the physicist. And at the time, uh, actually my other brother who is actually an aerospace engineer like you're supposed to be. And, um, he, uh, introduced me to Bitcoin at a time when they were giving them away for free. It's a, hard to remember that, but um, the chief scientist of Bitcoin, Gavin Andreessen, 
had a thing called, called the Bitcoin faucet. And all you had to do is log in, you get free Bitcoins. Um, and I, I read about it and said, you know, and I kind of have a libertarian streak. I'm like, oh, that'd be great. You know, I hope that happens. But I didn't actually, you know, do anything about it until 2013. So what drew you into that trade? What was it? Was it the disruption aspect of it? Yeah. So I've been looking at these things where you have very asymmetric risk reward, right? Russian privatization, Argentine farmland, you know, Middle East equities, whatever. Where, yeah, I mean, there's ways you could lose some money. But if you make money, you know, there's way more upside than downside. And that's the conclusion I came to uh, on Bitcoin in 2013. I still hold it that it's going to change the world and it might not do it overnight. And I know it's in a <laughs> savage bear market right now. But when you look at it over any multi-year time period, it always goes up. And, you know, I just don't think in 10 years, it's going to have completely changed the world. And so it just fit, it really did actually fit the mold of these things like Tesla Motors, you know, where, um, you know, it could have gone down 1 billion in market cap, but it could go up, you know, 200 billion in market cap. So, um, it fit the mold of one of those things where like, obviously there's some risk, you know, but huge amount of potential upside. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, do you still feel that way? Because we've seen huge amount of. So, there's the technology story that you're talking about that I think early adopters like yourself really, you know, hooked onto the sort of power of blockchain, the transparency, the and then there's the sort of speculative bubble that's kind of been layered over it where, you know, your taxi driver's asking you if they should buy more Bitcoin on every dev. So does the narrative still hold for you or do you worry about I don't know if you want to call it a crowded trade or, you know, some of these things that make people nervous when so many people are in something Maybe so many people don't really understand what they're in, and then the fallout from that. Does that bother you at all? Oh, no, it does, and it causes these incredible cycles within a massive secular trade, right? And so, um, you know, there certainly are times when, you know, there's potentially too much talk about Bitcoin on TV or whatever. Um, but the, the thing I always come back to is probably, you know, 90% of institutional investors don't really have a real position in blockchain yet. And so you really can't have, you know, an over-owned trade that nobody owns, right? And so, mm. well, we'll have these cycles. And we've had six big bull markets and bear markets in the 11 years I've been involved in Bitcoin. Um, and we'll probably have, you know, six more over the next 10 years. Uh, they don't really change the story for the long term. And the one thing to keep in mind is Bitcoin is like early stage venture, but with a real-time price feed, right? And so mm. if you tried to build the internet with a real-time price feed for, you know, Yahoo or, you know, Amazon or whatever, you might have died, you know, in the first 10 years of craziness before it went public. Uh, whereas cryptocurrencies go public immediately. And for better or worse, you know, you have a, a real-time price feed. And that does bring, you know, fear and greed into the equation. And so sometimes you have excessive positive speculation. Uh, and then sometimes you have... Uh, points like now where everyone's just super bearish and the world's coming to an end and it's never going to work. But I think when you kind of zoom back out 
um, it really is changing the world and in ways that need to be changed, right? Like there's very obvious broken things out in the financial system that blockchain Bitcoin can fix. So um, I think it's pretty obvious. And if, once you get kind of beyond that to like things like Web3, very obvious that's going to happen. So I would even say that in some of the previous bear markets for Bitcoin, I was sweating it, you know, like I was like, oh, maybe it's not going to work. Maybe it's going to break. You know, maybe the G7 outlaws Bitcoin or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think we're way past all those now. And so the, the amount that I'm worried about Bitcoin in this bear cycle is a lot less than the previous ones. And it doesn't mean that the financial impacts to me or other people aren't still significant. It just means that I don't think there's any chance, oh, it just like breaks and goes away and it's over, which, you know, in 2013 or 14, I, I was kind of sweating. Well, you had been through experiences like the great financial crisis where things, t- you know, the whole system didn't break, but it came damn close. And and you had government bo- backstops in that. So now this is, you can have failures in the venture world. There are many, many technology companies don't come out of it. And do you worry about that? So what, what are you exposed to? Because because somebody, well, first of all, let me let me back up one second, because you came from the macro world, traditional macro world. There is a lot, there are a lot of people who are anti-crypto, think it's a Ponzi. I heard people say that today. Is it difficult to go against the grain of that sort of community that you were a part of? Oh, there are such strong passions. Um, but if we're all being honest with ourselves, the biggest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world is the Fed's manipulation of the mortgage and bond market. The Fed drove the value of mortgages to $15 trillion above their 50-year historical average rate. And unfortunately, we are all suffering from the fallout of that bubble. So while there might have been a little bit of excess Bitcoin buying here and there, you know, the thing that's driving the world is this massive policy failure at the Fed. And um, unfortunately, I don't think even they understand how big the problem is yet. Uh so I think crypto can ultimately be insulated from that. Obviously, it hasn't been uh, in the first, you know, four or five months of this. Uh, but there's a, you know, in my mind, there's a world a year or two from now where rates are above 5%, both Fed funds in 10 years, stocks might be down a ton. Uh, anything else that's definitely connected to interest rates like real estate might be down. Um, unfortunately, I actually think the Fed created a massive bubble in housing. The Case-Shiller index is up 37% since they started printing money. Mm. I think they got to make that thing go negative, you know, to stop all this inflation. So I can see a world where all that stuff still struggles, where crypto is doing really well. And, you know, Lord knows it's not happening today. So <laughs> I'm not saying it has to happen immediately. But that's my main construct is even with all the crazy uh, destruction happening because of the Fed's policies. Mm. You could see a world where things like gold or soft commodities or uh, digital gold, Bitcoin, things like that can trade on their own merits. And I think you're going to see big institutions, you know, when they're looking to allocate capital, say, hey, I, you know, I don't want to invest in bonds. I, I don't think I can put more in stocks. Hey, what about blockchain? And so blockchain will ultimately be a, uh, in, see a lot of inflows. So if we hearken back to your worst trades, in both of them, the common denominator was that you had a narrative that you thought to be true, but didn't have the discipline to get out. What makes this one different? Like if you believe that narrative, but you know the financial conditions can turn on you in a way that you get swamped. 
Yeah, so uh, I think the thing that was bad in the two trades that were terrible for me is I didn't control my own destiny. You know, I was either at somebody else's firm and like my boss gets to pick whether I get to keep doing it or not. Uh, the second trade, the S&P uh, dividend swap, a couple of Wall Street firms got to decide whether I got to keep that for the next nine years or not. Uh, and so that's the huge advice here with cryptocurrencies is only invest an amount that you can own and hold. And uh, a guy once sent me a cold email saying, hey, I'm trying to invest in crypto and like I'm, I just got married and I want to know what percentage of my net worth or something I can invest. And I was like, don't invest more in it than if it went down 80%, your spouse would think you're adorable still. So <laughs> that's basically it. It's like as long as you don't put more than that amount in and you're willing to hold it, and it might take four or five years or whatever, then I think you could be okay. And that's why I love cryptos. I think it's inevitable it's going to change the world, right? Like China already has more people using a blockchain than all the other blockchains combined. The Federal Reserve's behind. They're trying to catch up. They're building the blockchain. So blockchain... It's like the, uh, Haldeman said in Watergate, the toothpaste is out of the tube, right? Like you can't get blockchain back in the tube. Mm. So it's going to be huge. And it might be another year of bear market. I don't know. You know, like it might be terrible. And that's my main advice to try and size things so that, you know, even if it is, you know, down for the next year or whatever, you can just kind of keep it in the back. Uh, and also I would say I'm a big fan of trying to have a more diversified you know, basket of things. Don't just put all your eggs in one protocol. Like if you're, you know, some people get really passionate about one thing or another, you know, um, it's like the early internet, you know, a lot of things were tried, some things worked, some things didn't. And, you know, it's smart to have, you know, more than just one thing in your portfolio. It's so good to have this conversation with you because you've seen so many cycles. You've seen them in, in traditional markets, you know, now as it moves in. And you're right. It's a savage sell-off. I mean, it's just painful. People are losing a lot of money. Is it easier? Has it gotten easier to, to manage through these really difficult times as you've gained experience? Or does it get harder to make decisions in this environment because you know so much? Oh, it's a great question. I would say, at least for me personally, it's so much easier. Is man, I've gone through this roller coaster for 35 years, like, you know, all these, you know, cycles. And, you know, it helps you stay grounded and, and you know, hopefully it helps me trade better. But the main thing is uh, my mental health. I'm getting a ton of emails from people like, oh, how you doing? I'm thinking about you. Oh, man. You know, and I'm just like, thank you. You know, I'm super grateful that people care, but um, I have been doing this for 35 years, so I've seen a lot of these, and I know it's all going to come back, and it's going to be great, and blockchain's going to change the world, and billions of people are going to have better lives. You know, so, you know, it's not fun right now. Um, you know, it's kind of painful, you know, at, at times, but I really do have that confidence that it is going to change the world. And the, the flip side of it is, and that's why I thought that dollar yen, uh, you know, anecdote was worth it, is like, you're getting killed on dollar yen. Like, I'm not sure it's going to ever come back or I'm not sure it's going to make a difference. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's definitely going to come back. I think, you know, it'll keep growing and it's definitely going to change the world for better. You know, so it is important. And I was talking to a couple of my friends that um, started with me in Bitcoin. And, you know, hey, we've been investors, hedge fund investors for all these years, you know, you're just kind of helping some pension plan improve their performance by two basis points or something. Like there isn't really, it's not obvious like what's so important about all the trading I used to do. Whereas, uh, if Bitcoin's successful, I mean, it really will impact a ton of people. And I've actually had a lot of people even say that already. So, 
you know, that's, that, that's just an added benefit, right? It makes it more fun to come to work every day because, you know, hopefully, you know, slightly helping to move this project forward. You're, you're plugging in purpose with the profit. Dan, that's great. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, and we really thank you for sharing all the wisdom you've uh, acquired over the years. Well, Maggie, thanks. It's a fun concept. I love the, the concept because uh, it's fun to talk about great trades, but you know, you learn probably more talking about the ones that don't work. I have to tell you, it's been uh, people spend a lot more time talking about the bad ones than they do the good ones because that's where all the learning is, right? And you know, that's that's the important stuff you pull out, and hopefully, what makes you better or gives you some wisdom as you move into the future. So it's been it's been super fun. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. This podcast is a production of Real Vision. Our executive producer is Lisa Desai. Our producers are Frank Fowler and Michelle Ribeiro. Our sound engineer is Levi Mercurio. Our production assistant is Ranjani Vankarakrishnan. And this show is hosted by me, Maggie Lake. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com